0: are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 4. Two announcements before we look at this. On uh, Tuesday night at from 6 to 8, we'll have a family dinner in here, and it also serves as our missions fundraiser. We've got seven or eight short-term mission teams going out uh, this year, various places around the world, and this is the one fundraiser that we do as a church to help Get those guys gone. We encourage everyone to go, and so we want to try to support them in in that. Uh, so if you can come Tuesday, that would be great. It is a fundraiser, so bring your checkbook. And all of the money for that will go to these short term teams. We've got these little uh, preview lists out front. We're doing a silent auction to help raise money for the short term teams as well. So you can grab one of these on your way out. You can see what's available. We've had a few late ads, and. Uh, all of that stuff will be there Tuesday night. So please come Tuesday from 6 to 8. Uh, it's a drop-in deal, so you can come whenever you can during that window to support our short-term mission teams. Also, it's a good way, just to dinner, nice way to connect with some other folks in the church. Also, uh, it was mentioned last week, we're going to start this Sunday night deal. Next Sunday is our first one uh, in here from 5 to 7. Um, I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do, um, but uh, we're going to eat, and we're going to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to listen to God, and I'm going to uh, share a little bit. Uh, it's not going to be a sermon, which for many of you might be the best advertisement out there, but we're gonna, what we're trying to do, in my mind, is I'm trying to figure out what does it look like for us to corporately begin to engage in what God is doing in our community. So if you think of a triangle with up, in, and out, I really want to kind of figure out what does it look like for us to do that out piece together. Honestly, it's not something that we're great at, and so I'm hopeful over these Sunday nights that we'll begin to, be, to figure that out. So you can sign up for that out front. We need you to sign up just to make sure we have enough food and uh, make sure we have your children covered. So you can see Kim. Uh, if you have any questions about any of those things, that would be wonderful. All right, Genesis 4. So just recap, we've been we're walking through Genesis a little bit out of time. We looked at creation in general. We looked at the creation of the garden, Adam and Eve, what God's plan and purpose was for Adam and Eve, how sin entered into the world and what the effects of that were on people and then what God's response to that was. Today we're going to start looking at chapter 4. So we're shifting away from Adam and Eve to how all of these things, sin and grace and God and Satan and how All of those forces are kind of uh, working themselves out in the lives of Adam and Eve's family. So we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read everything, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about uh, a couple of points. Adam lay with his wife Eve. She became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Just so you know, in chapter 5, they also had lots of other kids. So not, there's not four people on the earth at this point. There's lots of other ch- Cain is the firstborn. We don't know how far down the line Abel was. And again, according to chapter 5, they have lots of other children as well. Now, Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, "'Where is your brother Abel? I don't know,' he replied, "'Am I my brother's keeper?' The Lord said, "'What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth.'" Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence.'" I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, No, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This won't be important for us, but I'll hit this just uh, kind of working backwards. Nobody knows what the mark was on Cain. It was some type of visible sign that was that would symbolize to everyone at this point, everybody's his brother and sister, that would symbolize to them, don't kill him. Um, Whether you're trying to avenge Abel or not, it doesn't matter. Don't kill him. And God also said, if anybody kills you, then I'll pay them back. That word vengeance is almost always used of God punishing sin. I'll pay them back seven times. You see the punishment that God gives to Cain for his action. He sends him even farther from the Garden of Eden. Cain begins as a farmer, and God says, it's not, you're not going to be a farmer anymore. You polluted the ground with the blood of your brother, and so the ground's not going to provide anything for you anymore. And next week, when we look at kind of what happens with Cain and his family, you'll see he winds up building a city and doing some other things along those lines. So for us, there's really two main things I want us to look at. First, you've got this. Cain is a farmer. He's doing what his dad, Adam, had done. Abel, his brother, is a shepherd, most likely of sheep, which is a totally fine occupation as well. Both of them at some point bring an offering to the Lord. We don't know if that's the first time they brought an offering to God or if it was something that they did on a regular basis. That word, the phrasing there is pretty vague. What does it say? Uh, In the course of time, that's pretty vague. We don't know, again, if that means that they've done this before or not. God accepts... Abel and his offering, he rejects Cain and his offering. I don't know about you, but you may think "How oh, that's, not, that's not fair. They both brought God something based on what they do. Cain and Abel each based on what their particular job was, what their profession was. They each brought him something from that. Cain brought grain. Abel brought um, the fat portions of a sheep. So why? there's no instructions that we have here in Genesis that say, what they're supposed to bring or how they're supposed to bring it. So how can God hold one of them responsible? How come he picks Abel instead of Cain? I don't know if you feel that way or not. There's actually a pretty significant difference between their gift and has nothing to do with what they brought. It has everything to do with their hearts. The nature of the gift really reveals the heart of the giver. And if you look at the phrase there that describes each of their gifts, very different. What does it say about Cain? He brought some of the fruits of the soil. What does it say about Abel? He brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn. So what Cain did is he brought some of the rest. And what Abel did is he brought the best of the first. And those are not nearly the same thing. It had nothing to do that one brought grain or corn or something and someone brought uh, fat portions of a sheep. Actually, the, the, the nature of the, the, the substance of the gift is irrelevant. God is looking at the heart, and based on what they brought, God could see their heart. And what he sees from Cain is, he brings me some of what he has left over. And what he sees from Abel is, he brings me the first, the best part, the fat part's the best part of the sheep. He brings the best part of the first. Two completely different hearts. And so you can maybe draw some conclusions about how, about Cain and about Abel individually, and about their uh, relationship to God based on what they brought. Like you may look at Cain and say, well, he's stingy, he's selfish. You may look at Cain and say, he doesn't trust God. So he takes care of himself first, and then he gives God something based on what he has left over. So maybe he's a fearful person, and he doesn't trust that, that there's going to be crops. And so he has to take care of himself and his family first before he gives anything to the Lord. You may look at him and say, honestly, he just doesn't, he doesn't value God that much. He, it's an after, God's an afterthought. To him. You can look at Abel in a completely different way. He's selfless, he's giving, he's generous. You can say he trusts God, he's willing to give God the best of the first, and then take care of himself and his family after he first honors God with this offering. And you can say he honors God. He gives God the best stuff that he has. You can see a lot about their hearts based on what they give. And so for us, as we're looking at this. It can sometimes we can jump to the conclusions and say God's being arbitrary, he's not being fair, why would he take one over the other? But there's actually, again, a pretty significant difference between the two. And what that says to us is the same thing it says to them. What God is looking for is he's looking at our hearts. And he can look at what we give to him as a reflection of our hearts. What we do out here that can be seen is almost always a reflection of what's going on in here that only he can see. And that's what God ultimately is looking for. This is actually we actually in some ways are, are very similar to Cain and Abel. I've said before, for me I'm not a tithe guy. I think tithing is a is a is an old testament law concept. We're set free from the law. So in, in that sense, we're like Cain and Abel. There's not this there's not the this pattern that says, Here's how you have to give to God, whether that's time or money or service or whatever. We're free. We're led by the Spirit. I want to listen to God, and I want to respond to Him based on what's in my heart. I want to be someone who's giving, again, whatever that looks like, whatever the specific thing is that I'm giving, I want that to be a reflection of my heart towards Him. The two biggest, I think, for where we live are time and money. Time's a big deal for us. I think it's probably our most precious commodity, particularly depending on your life station. You may have zero margin. You've got no time. And so my encouragement slash challenge to you is when it comes to your time, do you, do you give more like Cain or do you give more like Abel? Do you give God what's, some of what's left after you've done everything else that you have to do? And the things that you have to do are most likely wonderful things. You've got to go to work. You've got to take care of your family. All these other things that you have to do. Do you give him some of what's left or are you like Abel? Do you give him the first of the best. So part of that is you recognizing when's your best. Some of you are morning people. Some of you are night people. Some of you are neither, which is difficult. You've got a little window. It's about two hours in the middle of the day where you thrive. But figure out when is your best time. And do you give God any of that? If you're a morning person, does he get any of your morning? If you're a night person, does he get any of your night? Again, if you're a Afternoon person. I think that's actually the trickiest. It's very, to me, it's very difficult to figure out how do I carve out and set aside some of this time in the middle of the day for the Lord. If that's you, that's, to me, that, that takes some work to kind of figure out in terms of logistics how you're going to put that into practice. But you can. It's much easier to do morning or night. If you're the kind who you, you say, for whatever reason, I'm going to spend time with God in the morning. And you wind up sleeping through it every day, it could very well be that you're not a morning person. So don't. Like, you don't get, there, there's no, like, there, nothing comes of that. There's nothing fruitful there for you. So, unless, it, either go to bed earlier or just say, hey, listen, I'm not great in the morning, so I'm going to give God some time at night. It's not less holy, it's giving Him some of the best of you. And I would say that in terms of devotion and service. The service part's really hard. I'm not talking about showing up here. I'm talking about are you engaging with what he's doing kind of in our community. Many of us, again, we're so busy with the things that we have to do. We don't have any time for what he may be doing in the lives of people we're connected to or what he may be doing in the lives of, of people in our community. We, just, we bypass that altogether. And we give ourselves a pass because we say it's a busy season. The only thing is if it's a season, at some point it has to end. And for many of us, it doesn't. Like, we have this picture that says, well, let me just get through this. Spring is a really busy time for us. Well, and then we take a rest in the summer. And then fall's a really big time for us. And then we've got the holiday. You can't do anything between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And pretty soon, it's next year. And then we tell ourselves, well, when my kids graduate, that's when, that's not true. Well, once I retire, once I make this promotion, once things slack off at work, all of those things on some level are true. And on the... On a different level, again, to maybe push a little bit, are we being like Cain and saying, God, I'm going to give you some of what's left after I do all of these other things. What does that say? No guilt. But what does that say about his place in my life? And what does that say about my love for honoring of him? If I'm constantly putting him on the back burner, saying I'll give him some of what's left. Again, you don't need to... Don't hear me saying perform, and don't hear me saying, show me, let's see. But we want to give much more like Abel that says, God, you are important to me. I do want to honor you with my life. A big part of that is honoring you with my time, and I need help. I work 60 hours a week. I've got two or three kids, or I've taken care of my parents, or whatever the things are that you have in your life. I've got all of this, and I'm trying to figure out where do you fit And honestly, you're the easiest thing to cut because you're not a squeaky wheel. So I need help. I want to give my time to you like Abel. I want to give you the, the, the first of the best, but I don't see how in the world I can make that happen. Help me. Ask him and then begin to see what he shows you. He's not going to ask you for seven hours a day or eight hours a day or 12 hours a day. He's going to show you some things that you can begin to do, I would say, with only a minimal amount of pain at the beginning just to get moving in this direction. The other one for us is money. Always tricky to talk about money in the church. You want to know if I'm wanting something from you, something for you or if I'm wanting something from you. Am I just trying to set you up so you put more money in the bucket so I can get a new car or whatever those things are? Just to put it all on the table, absolutely, if Stonebridge is your home church, I think you should give. If you feel like God is working here, there's fruit here, then I would say you should give to that. How much doesn't matter to me. I just mentioned I'm not a tithe guy. That's between you and the Lord, how much you give. But if this is your home church, then you should give. If it's not, then you don't need to feel any pressure to give here. But everybody should be giving somewhere. And so the question is, with our money, am I more like Cain or am I more like Abel? Do I tend to give God some of what 's left, or do I give him the best part of what 's first it 's tricky for us because again, for most of us before our paycheck hits our bank it 's already spent it 's not like we have all this extra money laying around most of us as soon as it comes in, every bit of it is already earmarked, and most of it the stuff that it 's earmarked for are things that they 're important i got to pay the mortgage and I got to pay school tuition and i got to put food on the table and i got to keep the lights on and By the time all that's done, I'm not, we don't have a lot. That's how most of us feel. And so this idea of saying giving to God, it's like, again, he's not a squeaky wheel. He doesn't need anything anyway. He says, I'm the cattle on a thousand hills. You can't give me anything. And we say, okay, well, then we won't if you don't need anything. That's not, we're missing it on some point, some level. And again, if the way we use our money is a reflection of what's in our heart, what? What does that say about us? I'd encourage you a couple of things. If giving, for some of us, when we hear giving, we have two responses. We either get defensive because we don't give, and you're coming up with all the reasons why you can't, or we're smug because we do, and you're not listening to me either. Well, I already give, so I'm good. I don't need to worry about that. Either way, my encouragement to you is to begin to think through what does my giving reveal about my heart? I want to give like Abel some of the best of the first, not like Cain, some of what's left at the end of the month or at the end of the two-week period. So I would say if you currently don't give, you don't have to give it here, but if you currently don't give, I would encourage you just to start. Write a check. And you can write it the same way I said about time. God, I don't see how in the world I can do without this $50. I can see all kinds of places in my life where this needs to go. I don't get it. At all, but I'm going to give you. I'm just as as a discipline, as a reflection of my heart for you. I'm going to give you some of the best of the first stuff that comes in, before the government, before my IRA, before anything else. I'm going to give you some of the best of the first that comes in, and I don't see how I'm going to make it till the thirty first if I do this, and so I need your help. But I'm going to do that. So I would encourage you just to begin to do that as a discipline. And as you're doing that, what I would be saying is, and God, you've got to help me figure out why this is so hard for me. Just like with your time, God, I need you to help me figure out why this is so difficult. Am I greedy? I've been in small groups since I was 12. I've never heard anybody say they were greedy, ever. I don't don't know why. That's one that we don't grab onto. I don't know if it feels too... Silly, if it feels too selfish, but for whatever reason, I never hear anybody confess greed as a sin. Jesus talks about it in Mark and in Luke. Paul talks about it in Colossians and in Ephesians. In every list of sins, greed is in there. But it, and if you look around at where we live, it's a, it's a deal. But for most of us, we feel, feel like it's a deal for somebody else and not for us. Greed means I want more than I've got. That's it. So if, if I'm desiring more than I have, then I'm prone to being greedy. Psalm 16 says the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. What greed says is not really. I'd like them to be pushed out just a little bit. That's hard for us to live within the lines that we feel like God has put in front of us. Does that mean you can't take a promotion? Absolutely not. Does it mean you can't take a better paying job? Absolutely not. What I'm asking is, are you motivated by a desire for more? And if the answer is yes, let's not call that ambition. Let's call that greed. And let's bring it before the Lord and say, I struggle with this. I want a nicer car. That's called covetousness. Let me say that. So let's put those things out there so we give him a chance to work in our hearts. Are we fearful? God, I can't give because honestly, I don't trust you. I've got to take care of myself. I don't trust you with my family. I don't trust you with my own needs. I've got this list of responsibilities. I'm not out blowing money. But I need everything that comes in. Ultimately, is that why it's hard for you to give? Because you say, I just don't make enough to give. I need it all. That's a lack of trust. That's living in fear. So I need to bring that to him and say, God, this is hard for me. This is really difficult for me because I'm doing the I look at the spreadsheet, I'm doing the books. It's all spoken for. So where is it supposed to come from for me to give something else to you? For some of us it's complacency. We we started giving a long time ago. We just automatically still give the same amount. You need to ask the Lord, is this still fine? You want me to be you want me to do something else. You don't have to do what we do at all, but we talk about it every month. How much you want to give this month? Where do we want it to go? And the easiest thing for, I'm a pastor, so giving here actually pays my own salary. It's like I'm giving to myself. It's a circle. And it's still hard for me to write the check. And it's still, oh, wait, we've got a birthday this month. We've got to pay for soccer registration. Maybe the easiest thing in the world to do is to not, because every month there's always something. But if you'll give him the, the best of the first, he kind of takes it off the table. And then you're free to spend the rest throughout the month. So I don't know what it is for you, what keeps you from giving. But even as you begin the discipline of giving, I would encourage you to ask the Lord, help me on this heart level, because this is hard for me. And I need to invite God into this. So there's giving in the second thing. We see what happens with Cain. So I don't know how Cain and Abel knew that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. It's not written. And sometimes in the Old Testament, fire comes down and burns everything up. Maybe that happened. He burned up Abel's offering, and then Cain's is just kind of sitting there, and they know. It may have been over time. God blessed the Cain, or Abel's flocks, and his sheep were multiplying and prospering, and he had the best sheep in the land, and Cain's fields were struggling, and he had the sorriest wheat in the land. I don't know, but somehow they knew. It was clear to both Cain and Abel, particularly to Cain, that God had rejected his offering and had accepted his brother's offering. So those of you who are older siblings, you think about that. And what that does for you when you're a younger sibling, he's brought this thing before God and God's accepted his and he's rejected yours. And Cain has two reactions. He gets angry and he's downcast. Angry, that, that word has this idea of burning. He's smoldering towards Abel. Even though Abel hasn't done anything wrong, again, that's that kind of older brother, younger brother thing, and towards God. And then he's downcast. He's upset. He's dejected, despondent in some ways. And then God gives him an opportunity and a warning. He says, listen, Cain, it's not the end of the world. If you'll do what's right, you're, you'll be lifted up. Your face is downcast. We'll lift it up. You'll have, Me and you will be good. You and your brother will be good. Everything will be fine. All you have to do is what's right. That's the encouragement, the warning. But if you don't do what's right, what's going to happen? Sin is crouching at the door. It's like a lion waiting to pounce on you. It wants to dominate you. And it's your responsibility to master it. That's what that phraseology is saying there. It, sin wants to dominate you. Your responsibility is to dominate or master or rule over it. And we know what happens. Cain gives in to sin. And he commits premeditated murder. He lures his brother out into the field. He kills him. God says, what happened? Cain lies. I don't know where Abel is. So he murder, lying, and then it's this kind of sarcastic, contemptuous response to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Can you imagine kind of sassing God that way how resentful Cain has become towards his brother and towards God that he would respond that way to the Lord? He's gone all the way downhill. It's interesting to me. I don't know this. I just wonder this. Part of God's judgment of Cain, it says he curses him. Neither Adam nor Eve were cursed for the sins that they committed. The serpent was cursed. So the serpent and Cain were cursed. Adam and Eve weren't. And I wonder if some of that has to do with the fact that Cain had, there's no repentance in his heart. There's no remorse. There's no recognition. Even when when God punishes him, he's like, it's too much for me. What I want to you killed your brother, the only thing that's happening is you're getting kicked out of the house. That's it. Don't be such a baby. You're lucky God didn't kill you right now. That's how selfish he, he doesn't get it at all. When God judges him, his response is to cry about it, even though God's been merciful to him. That just shows how dark and twisted and wicked and hard his heart is, and I actually wonder if that's part of the reason he was cursed. Adam and Eve aren't because even though it took them a while, they eventually said, yeah, we did it. We messed up. They're still judged for their sin, but it's not they're not cursed because of it. There's still opportunity. We see that even with Cain. I think there's an opportunity for him to repent. He just doesn't take it from everything that we can see. So for us, I think the pull away, you're not going to go kill your brother or your sister. You're not going to do that. The takeaway for us is, What do you do? What's your response when you're corrected or rebuked or disciplined, whatever words you want to use there? How do you respond to that? Two guarantees. One, it's going to happen. Hebrews 12, 5 says this. Have you not forgotten the word of encouragement? How about this for a word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. That's a great word of encouragement. You want that on your fortune cookie this afternoon when you go to tsunami. That's what the writer of a Hebrew says. It's going to come, and it's going to come from God. He, His Romans eight twenty nine. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. None of us looks like Jesus. Fully, And that's what God's desire is for every one of us. And so that process at times will be painful. That's the second guarantee. The first is that this correction, rebuke, discipline is going to come. And the second is at times it's going to hurt. Not all the time, but at times it's going to hurt when God does that as he's shaping your character. There's going to be times where it's difficult. Two of the primary ways God will shape you, he will refine you, if you like that word from Malachi. He's a refiner's fire purifying us through the primary ways or through other people and through difficult circumstances. Not necessarily saying God causes that, but he will use those things in your life. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Recognize, endure hardship as discipline. Recognize God will use difficult circumstances, suffering, even persecution, to mold you and shape you to make you look more like his son. Read Proverbs. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. There's this idea that God speaks to us through others. He uses other people to point out. We've said, you know, sometimes it points out the gold that's in our heart, and sometimes other people point out the lettuce that's in our teeth that we just can't see. Ideally, it's someone who loves us and can speak to us gently and kindly. Oftentimes, that's not the case. It's people who are jerks and people who are mean and may not even be believers. And God, But there's still some truth spoken to them, and God uses that to correct us and rebuke us and discipline us. And so it's going to come. At times, it's going to hurt. My question is, what is your response when it does? Think back. How do you tend to respond? With Cain, we see he's angry and he's downcast. Again, the, to me, those aren't the same thing. I have two pictures, and you can pick out which one is you. Are you angry? That's an outward-oriented response. It's lashing out at other people. Cain is angry. He lashes out at his brother, and he lashes out at God. It's their fault. They did something wrong, not Cain. He's blaming them. He's defending himself. We've talked before. We all have flesh. Some of our flesh is called positively oriented. We've said that kind of makes me a winner. I take credit for everything. I don't take responsibility for everything. Nothing's my fault. And then we also have, it's kind of negatively oriented. We call that kind of having a loser mentality. Everything's my fault. Woe is me. Both of them are sinful. If you kind of have that positively oriented flesh, then most likely you respond in anger because, of course, it's not your fault. Your offering was wonderful. It's Abel's fault or it's God's fault. It's never yours. So is that your response when you're corrected? You shoot the messenger. You come up with all the reasons why whoever said whatever they said to you was wrong you blame God for the circumstances that you're in? And how come he can't get you out of them? Or are you Eeyore? Something goes wrong and you're downcast. Think about that. My face goes down. I'm looking in here. Become massively, even morbidly introspective. Woe is me. I can't do anything right. Nothing I do ever works out. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. Nobody likes me. That kind of thing. That's, that's downcast. Looking in, both of them are sinful responses To if, if they're played out to correction or rebuke or discipline. I want to encourage you, which, which one do you fall towards? Even if you would say, I don't necessarily get angry at others, but if somebody says something to you that's corrective or that can be seen as a rebuke, do you tend, at least in your mind, just to kind of say, well, this is, you don't have a right to say that to me because of this, this, and this. If you only knew, da-da-da-da-da, that's anger. Even if you don't blow up at them, it's the same response. It's an out, it's saying, it, something's wrong with you, nothing's wrong with me. If you have an or response, Psalm 42 says, Why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God? So I want to go from looking in at everything that's wrong with me to looking up towards him. That's the difference. If you tend to be Eeyore, you need to recognize that. There's not a whole lot you can do to change. It's how you're made in some ways. And there's good parts of that. This is kind of the ugly part of that. But you want to recognize. That's the ditch I can fall into. I can start throwing myself a pity party. Woe is me. And so what I've got to do is put my hope in God. Not start listing all the things that are wrong with me. If you Tend towards anger, and that more aggressive response, blaming other people or blaming God. Ephesians 4 says, don't sin in your anger and don't let the sun go down on it. So that means you can't stew. That, to me, is one of the worst things about anger is we just kind of, we brood and we stew and we plot and we plan and we keep going back over the same ground and having these arguments in our head with other people. We can, none of that's helpful. So I've got to figure out how to release that stuff primarily to the Lord so that it doesn't lead me towards sin and so that I don't dwell on it because it will turn toxic in my heart really quickly. So again, how do you respond when you're disciplined, when you're corrected, when you're rebuked, particularly over something that you think you do well or something that you think is important? That's really the test. If it's something you don't care about, you're fine with people telling you what to do. But what about if it's an area where you feel competent? Or what about if it's, a, if it's a relationship that you hold dear? Or what about if it's something that you, you say, I, I never do that. That's not the kind of person I am. And somebody says, actually, it is the kind of person you are. How do you respond in those settings? We don't want to be cain. We want to recognize there's sin crouching at the door. You don't have to give in. There's, but there's sin waiting to pounce on you. If you either go the Eeyore route or the Angry Birds route, there's sin waiting to take advantage of those emotions and that mindset. If you'll, rather than doing that, if you'll acknowledge, hey, you know what, there's probably some truth here. I don't like anything about the way you said it to me, but there's some truth in there, and I'm just going to grab onto the truth and I'm going to forget the package. Or, This circumstance is awful, and I can't wait for it to change, but it's showing me some things about myself that I need to own. I'm recognizing I'm impatient or whatever those things are. That's the first step is realizing, hey, this is true, and then repenting. Repenting is saying, I don't want to walk in this direction anymore. I'm going to start walking in that one. So, God, I recognize this is truth. Again, I don't love it. It stings. I'm actually somewhat embarrassed that this is the case about me. Thank you for showing me, and I'm going to turn and start walking in the other direction by your grace. I, obviously, I don't have it in me to do that, or I would have been doing it already. And so I need your grace to help me walk in this new direction. That's it. That's the, the ideal way to respond when you're disciplined or corrected or rebuked, is to see it as an opportunity to become more like Jesus. Rather than just seeing it as negative, it's going to sting. See it as an opportunity become more like Jesus. We're going to close. And I want to close with three things. I want you thinking about. Actually I don't want you thinking about them. I want you responding to these three things. I thought that first verse. We didn't talk about it at all. But it was. um, I thought about it when I read it the first time. This idea it says. uh, With the help of the Lord I brought forth a man. That's Eve saying that. So I want to pray if you're pregnant. We want to pray for you. If you want to be pregnant. And that's something that you're struggling with. We want to pray for you. And if you're thinking, hey, I think this is, if you and your spouse right now, y'all are talking about it, we want to pray for y'all just about that whole process about, of conception. I know that can be dicey, it can be tricky, it can be emotional in some ways, and we just want to ask God into that. So if you're saying, with the help of the Lord, I want to bring forth a son or a daughter, we want to pray with you if you fit in any of those categories. If you're struggling with your finances, we want to pray for you about that as well. Some people, for whatever reason, don't see that as something that God gets involved in. It's too worldly. That's totally not the case. And so if, if you're wrestling with your finances, this whole thing about giving, all it's done is made you feel guilty because you're struggling money-wise. Maybe you've got a lot of debt. I don't know. Maybe your job just doesn't pay enough money. We want to pray for you about that. If you, if you would say, hey, I'm a greedy. I'm greedy. That's an area where I wrestle. We want to pray for you, that God would deliver you from that as well. And the last thing I would say is if, you're, if right now, if you would say you feel like you're in the middle of a time where you're being disciplined or corrected by the Lord, we would like to pray with you about that as well. Just that you would respond in a, in the, in a righteous way. That you would be open to what God's trying to say to you and that you would incorporate these changes that he's trying to make into your life, that you wouldn't resist. We said before, God's going to do what he's going to do. If you're a Christian, he's going to conform you into the image of Jesus. The question is, are you going to be soft clay that he can use his hands with, or are you going to be kind of hard like a rock, and he's going to have to use a hammer and a chisel? That's no fun, and we don't want to see that happening to anybody. So if you would say, hey, I feel like I'm in this time where God is correcting me, he's disciplining me, we would like to pray with you that, God, that you would respond well in that circumstance. So, Bo, you can come on back. I'm going to pray. If you're on ministry teams, if you'd come forward. You guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us after this song. Let me pray for us briefly. God, we've kind of been all over the place this morning look, talk, look, talking about some things that don't necessarily connect in. But I do believe there are people here this morning in each of those camps. And what they need is they need your activity in their life. They need your intervention. And so, God, I pray for those who in the pregnancy camp. God, we pray for conception. I pray particularly for those who have been unable to conceive. God, we pray that This would be the month. God, we pray for those who are wrestling financially. It's a constant burden for them. They dread going to the mailbox because of what's going to be in it. God, we pray for deliverance for them. God, for any of us who are, if we were honest, would say we're enslaved by money. We think about it all the time. It drives all of our decisions. God, would you set us free? this morning. And God, I pray for the handful of men and women who are undergoing a time of correction and discipline, God. You're working on them, doing some deep work in terms of their heart and their character. God, I pray first they would recognize your loving hand, that they would hear that as a word of encouragement from the writer of Hebrews. Take heart. This is God working in you, and he's working in you because he loves you, not because he's upset with you. Not because you're hopelessly broken, but because he sees in you glimpses of his son. and He wants to bring those out more fully. If he didn't care, if he didn't love you, he'd just leave you as you are. But because he does, he's diligently at work in your heart and in your life. God, I pray that you would encourage them this morning. Give them grace to respond to the work of your spirit in their life. And God, I pray for those of us who aren't going through one of those times. Give us eyes to see the people around us who are, that we would know how to encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can come forward as you want, and then Bo will dismiss us after this.